Maybe you were challenged a couple of weeks ago and you made some changes and you dealt with some things in your life, but you also found that you went out from here and you fell into sin and you felt defeated. I want to share a couple of things with you before we get into the content today. If that's you, we looked at this last time. Remember this. The Holy Spirit, praise the Lord, is the one who convicts. If you're feeling the conviction, it's because the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. If you're not at all convicted when you sin, you've got a bigger problem. You've got to come to Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts, but Satan condemns. God never condemns. There's a time coming for that. But if you're a believer, he doesn't condemn, he convicts. You see, the enemy can only pass on what he has. He is condemned. He's got no hope. Think about that. He has no hope. He's condemned. He can only pass on to you what he has, and it's a sense of condemnation. Write this verse down if you're taking notes. We're going to go through a lot today. I'm not going to apologize for this. This today is a real teaching session. Are you ready for it? Are you up for it? Because you're going to get thrown a lot of stuff. I'm not apologizing for that. It's time we step our game up a little bit. We're going to do that today. But the first thing you want to write down is this, Micah chapter 7, verse 8. When you have fallen in sin and you're feeling condemned, this is what you can quote out loud. Israel quoted it, and it applies to us too. It says this, Don't gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise again. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. I love that. Those moments where you feel just rotten, where you have slipped up, you can say, yeah, I've been knocked down. I'm in that boxing ring, and I've taken a punch I never saw coming. And I'm on the canvas, but I want to tell you, Satan, don't gloat over me. Though I've fallen, I will rise again. And then when you've, when you've quoted that, the other one, which I call the Christian's water blaster, is 1 John 1 verse 9. It says, if we sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. You see, when you sin, all you need to do is say, Lord, cleanse me again. He's already forgiven you, by the way. He forgave you once for all time. When you gave your life to Christ, how many of your sins did he forgive at that moment? What about the ones you hadn't done? Had he forgiven them? Yes, because he stands outside of time. All your sin was forgiven. But as Jesus said to his disciples, you've had a bath, all you need is to have your feet cleaned. And that's 1 John 1 verse 9, when you sin, you say, Lord, just clean me again. Clean this temple. Cleanse this temple of anything that shouldn't be in it. That's 1 John 1 verse 9. A couple of things to bear in mind. There's two things going on in your life. You're battling the flesh and you're battling Satan. You crucify the flesh. It says, put to death whatever is in your sinful nature. You crucify your flesh every day, but you resist the devil. You don't crucify the devil. You need to realize who you're fighting. Is it your natural fleshly inclinations that you need to crucify every day and lay at the altar? Or is it something else going on? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. There are times in your life you need to resist the devil. It's not a passive thing. We talked about that. It's an active thing. You cannot, you cannot resist something unless you're pushing back. Otherwise, you'll fall. Well, one of the things the enemy likes to do is to hide in the darkness. We saw that. His is called the kingdom of darkness. 
So today, we have an opportunity to learn a little bit more about the reality of the realm we don't see, both the good and the bad. Now, as I started thinking about sharing this topic the last couple of weeks, I thought we could easily spend six hours talking about this and still just start to scratch the surface. So today, you're going to get a quick fire overview. Is that okay? Enough to open your eyes, but hold on tight, take some notes. And as we said before the service in the prayer meeting, the most important thing is to go and test the scriptures. The Bereans were like that. It says that they were more noble than the others because they went and they tested what they'd heard based on their own study of the Word of God. Go do that. Don't take what I say as, as the Word. You do your own research. But let's start the context here today by having a look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. Colossians 1 verse 16, actually verse 15, it speaks of Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who created the spiritual realm? God. And in specific, specifically, who does it say created the spiritual realm? Jesus Christ. Everything that has been made was made through Jesus Christ. And the spiritual realm didn't evolve over billions of years. He created the spiritual realm. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And it tells us that the Word, being Jesus, was the Creator. In Genesis 1 verse 1 it says, In the beginning, God created. Do you know what? In those three verses, you have destroyed every religion other than Christianity. It says Jesus Christ is the Creator, God is a creator. They're the same person, full stop, game, set, and match. There's no other spiritual realm. There's no other being. There's no philosophy. There is nothing that's been created that did not come from Jesus Christ. In three verses, you've just wiped out every religion. Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us that we are in a spiritual battle. You know, it's interesting. When Jesus walked on the earth, his whole life was surrounded by spiritual things going on. He battled demons. He battled Satan personally. He had to battle supernatural attacks. You know, when he was on the sea, it says that there was a storm that arose, and he was with fishermen who did this for a living. This is what they did. They were used to being on the lake in the rougher seas. They were absolutely terrified by a storm that just happened to come up as Jesus was with them. And the amazing thing is Jesus stood up. And what did he do to the waves? What did he do? He, re he rebuked the waves. Have you ever thought about that? You don't rebuke waves. He was rebuking what was going on behind the waves. He was under the attack of the devil. He was encountering spiritual opposition. 
Jesus also had many encounters with angels as he walked this earth. He had angels attend him in the desert when he was under temptation. He had an angel come and comfort him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had that amazing experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when you read the Old Testament, you get a similar picture. It's just littered with encounters with angels. When you go to Revelation, you're overwhelmed by the reference to angels and living creatures and demons and, and, and the dragon. It's just, it's, it seems so wildly different to what most Christians live today, doesn't it? And yet it's so true. So we're going to have a look for a moment at who angels are. Who are angels? Well, we know from Colossians 1 verse 16 that angels were created by who? By Jesus Christ. The important difference to humans is that, and you need to get this, is every angel, every single angel is a distinct creation of God. You see, when God created Adam and Eve in his image, by the way, in his perfect image, not a mistake, not an accident, not a chance, in his perfect image, he created Adam and Eve and breathed his spirit in them. He did the same with every single angel, creating them distinctly. And as you get into the Hebrew and understand the words around the word of Elohim and other things like that, you understand that it was a direct creation of God, every single angel. It's not a family of angels. It's not a race of angels. Every angel is a distinct creature with a distinct purpose. Every one of them is holy. Every one of them dwells in the presence of God, or most of them do now. There's a hierarchy of angels. Some angels have different jobs to other angels. We read in Jude chapter 1 that there's an angel you might have heard of called Michael. He's the archangel. His role is, is, does anyone know what his role is? He protects Israel. Wow, I love that. Michael protects Israel. And you see him in the Old Testament, and it says that he will do it at the end times as well. He will stand up for Jacob. That's his job. You read about it in Daniel, about the fight in the spiritual realms that Michael was involved in, standing over Israel. What about Gabriel? Who do you think, what role do you think Gabriel has as an angel, primarily? The messenger, that's right. He turns up with awesome messages. Imagine that. He's the guy that God says, I've got a message for you. Could you go and, could you go and tell Mary something pretty big? <laughs> He's the messenger. And, and Gabriel and Michael work hand in hand at times too. Well, when people encounter angels, they, interestingly, in the Old Testament, they describe them as being men or having the appearance of men. Very different to what we read about eh, or see on TV where you see all these angels with all these wings and everything else. No, when people encountered them in the Old Testament, they just saw them as men and yet they knew that they were angels. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 is a beautiful verse. It says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those who will inherit salvation? Think about that. Angels have a job. And if you are inheriting salvation, they have a job to minister to you. Wow. I believe many of us have encountered angels and never known it. Probably never seen them. Not even knowing they're having anything to do. But they're watching over us. 
Matthew 18, verse 10, Jesus talks about how, when he was talking about children, he says, their angels are in the presence of God. You might have referred to them as guardian angels. We read the amazing story of Peter. You might remember the story, Peter was in prison, and the angels come and they open the doors. One angel comes, open the doors, takes Peter out of prison. Peter doesn't really know what's going on. He's in a bit of a dream, he thinks, but it's actually happening. And so he goes and he knocks on the door of, of some of his friends who are praying for him. And Rhoda, I think it is, opens the door and sees him. And she runs back and tells everyone because she can't believe what she's seeing. And they say an interesting thing. They say, maybe it's his angel that you saw. And so we see in the New Testament, there's an understanding that there is an interaction that we don't understand of angels in the heavenly realms who are sent to minister. Maybe you've encountered some. I remember a number of years ago, I was on a motorbike. I came around a corner coming down a hill. And as I came around this corner, there was a car coming up. And it was, it was so sudden, I slammed the brakes on. And I went flying over the front of the bike. My, my bike went up into, the, into the, uh, a hill. And I, stupidly that day, was only wearing a thin shirt like this with no jacket and a T-shirt underneath. I came off the bike and I, I hit the ground on my helmet and scraped underneath the car. And the guy stopped and he jumped out of the car and he ran around to me. By that stage, I was mostly from uh, under the car. I'd got out. And I got up a bit shaken and he, he sort of helped me to my feet. And we both kind of looked at me and he looked all around me. And he just looked at me like, what's happened? How come there's nothing on you? And you see, I'd been scraping along the bottom of the road on my helmet going underneath the car. There was not a scratch on my helmet. There was not a scratch on me. My bike was a bit of a shambles. But you know, I rode home that day, and I tell you what, I've, one of those few times in my life, I knew that I knew <laughs> that someone had intervened in that moment. Incredible. Not a scratch on me. Maybe you've had some experiences like that. Some of us, I think the angels work overtime. Well, there's some people, including um, those of the Catholic persuasion, who actively try to speak to angels, just like they do try to speak to dead people, um, who they call saints. And this isn't biblical. It opens up a whole range of issues. You see, while God sends them to give us messengers, the last thing we're to do is to try and give messages back the other way. We only have one mediator. Who is he? One mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. The moment you start to try and talk to dead people, whether it's Peter, Paul, or James. By the way, you know what the penalty was for that in the Old Testament? Death. The moment you engage in that kind of behavior, you're actually in the occult. You're not in Christianity at all. You're in the realm of Satanism. We have one mediator between God and man. If you've been doing that, if you've ever been into doing that kind of thing, it's a, an opportunity today for you to repent. Well, we know there are different types of angels. There's living creatures. There's the cherubim, who, who seem to be the most holy of the, of the angels, if you can call them angels, who dwell in the holy of holies. You might remember in the tabernacle, in the holy of holies, they had cherubim who were, um, who were made of gold, and they, they looked over the tabernacle. It was representative of what's in heaven. Hebrews 13 verse 2 says that some of us have entertained angels and never known it. Oh, I'd love that. Imagine getting to heaven, finding out that guy or that girl who, who you had around for lunch one day was actually an angel. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Angels are nothing to be messed with. 
Usually when they turn up, they scare the crap out of people. <laughs> you go through the Old Testament, you look at the guys who, you know, like Daniel and Ezekiel, Isaiah, John, uh, the shepherds, they had a raw deal. I mean, when angels turned up, they had a common saying. What was it? Do not be afraid. Fear not. And they, these people were terrified when they saw angels. After dinner one day, one angel turned up to help Hezekiah. And on his own, one angel killed 185,000 people. So you don't mess with angels, my friends. <laughs> one angel could take on 185,000 people. Angels can speak in dreams. Angels in, could inflict blindness on the men of Sodom. One of the angels, <coughs> Gabriel, made Zechariah mute because he didn't believe the angel. And Gabriel said, I stand in the presence of God. Basically saying, how dare you question the message I'm bringing from God. And he made him mute. As a special angel, when you encounter this angel, you realize there's something very different. There's only one of them, and his name is the angel of the Lord. You only read about him in the Old Testament. There's a reason for that. You see, the angel of the Lord is not an ordinary angel. The angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Every time a person encounters the angel of the Lord, they realize they're not speaking to an angel. They're speaking directly to God. They worship him. And the angel of the Lord, we have to realize Jesus didn't just suddenly arrive on the scene in Nazareth. He'd had a job to do the whole way through time. And you know who the, who the angel was that killed 185,000 people? It was the angel of the Lord. Boy, that's going to mess with your perception of Jesus, isn't it? You see, in the end times, Jesus is coming back and it says that his robe's going to be dipped in blood because he's going to lead the armies of heaven and annihilate the enemies of God. The idea of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is beautiful, but it's not entire, the entire picture. The angel of the Lord is no one to be messed with. The angel of the Lord was the one who, who Jacob fought. He was the one who Abraham spoke and pleaded for Sodom and Gomorrah. He was the one Gideon spoke to. Amazing being, and we could talk all day about the angel of the Lord. Angels are not to be worshipped. The only angel who permits it is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. He's the only one who lets it happen. Anytime a person tries to worship another angel, the angel says not to do it. Even in Revelation chapter 22, verse 9, John is so blown away by what he sees, he tries to worship the angel. The angel says, don't do it. He says, I'm a servant, John, just like you. Worship God as holy as they are. We read in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14 that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Did you know, I don't know if you knew this, there's an indirect reference to Mormonism and, and Islam in the Gospels or actually in the New Testament. You see, Galatians 1 verse 8 says this. It says, Even if an angel from heaven were to come and preach to you another gospel, let him be eternally condemned. What's the reference to Islam and Mormonism, well, Muhammad 
And Joseph Smith, who started Mormonism, had the exact same experience. Did you know that? They both went to a cave. They both allegedly had an angel speak to them, who both gave them a different book with a different revelation. Hello, Galatians 1 verse 8. If an angel from heaven preaches to do another gospel, let him be eternally condemned. All they had to read was Galatians 1 verse 8 and realize they were getting deceived. Well, that's the fastest overview of angels that you're ever going to get. There's a lot more, but we want to move on and talk about a few other things today. We've, talk, we've talked about the, uh, the winning team. Let's talk about the losing team. Let's talk about Satan and his scallywags, as I've called this section. <laughs> the question we have today is, how do we end up with an enemy? Have you ever wondered that? How do we end up with this nuisance? Well, in a brief overview this morning, we're going to look first at this being we know as Satan. The word Satan actually means adversary. He's known as the devil, which means the accuser. And when you look at Revelation 12, verse 10, you read how Satan is the accuser of the brethren, it's called. He's also the accuser of the Baptist and the accuser of the Presbyterian. No, the word brethren means the, the believers. He's the accuser of the believers. He has many other names. He's called the tempter, the evil one, the serpent, the dragon. He's called Beelzebub, which means what? Lord of the flies. It's quite an apt description, really, isn't it? He's called the father of lies. By the way, you know when Jesus had that encounter with the Pharisees about, who, about how they had a, the father of lies as their father? Remember that interaction? We don't get the full understanding, but what was going on was this. They were calling him a child without a father. And we know what the word is for that, right? There was something going on where they were saying to him, you don't even have a father. You, you were born out of wedlock. You're an illegitimate child. That's what was really going on in that discussion. And Jesus amps it right up and says, is that right? Well, you know who your father is? Your father's a devil. <laughs> Imagine that. I mean, that was kind of really pulling out the punches, wasn't it? That was the interaction going on. And so he said to them, basically, if you're not for me, your father is the father of lies. He's also called the prince of the power of the air. There's two passages I want you to write down because we don't have time to go through them, but I'll reference them. And they give you a description of how Satan started off and how he ended up as a fallen angel. And they are Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 to 17. And the second passage is Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. Ezekiel 28, verse 11, and Isaiah 14, verse 12, in that passage. But what you find out is this, from what we understand in the Bible, Satan, bear in mind, was created perfect, but with choice, just like you. We all have choice, but he was created perfect. And it seems from what we can understand that he dwelt in the very inner presence of God. He's adorned with all the same jewels that are referenced in the holy place in Revelation. He was right in the midst of the throne of God. And it seems from what we know that his role was to receive the worship and to offer it to God. But in Isaiah, it says that while this was going on, it says, you were a beautiful cherub until pride was found in you. 
You see, at some point in, in eternity, some point in history, Satan and his job got the idea that maybe he could just stop the worship at him. Maybe he could be the one who's worshipped. And pride emerged in his heart. And at that moment, sin commenced. Isn't it interesting? What did Satan say to Jesus when he was tempting him? He said, I'll give you all of this stuff, just what? Worship me. He wants your worship, people. He wants you to put him and the pleasures of this world above your devotion to God. How many angels are there that go with Satan? Well, there's different views on this, but if you read Revelation 12 and Revelation 5, it seems that, well, we know two things. A third of the angels fell with Satan, so at least we've got good odds there. We've got two-thirds that are still, still fighting him. But from what we understand, in terms of angels, there seems to be over at least 100 million angels. That's pretty big. 10,000 times 10,000. There's other references too. Well, Satan knows that his destiny cannot be changed. In Matthew 25, verse 41, it says that the lake of fire was prepared first for the devil and his angels. Satan knows that. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it tells us of his future and how he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 12, verse 9, let's talk about the devil's goals and what he tries to do. Revelation 12, verse 9 says he has two aims. The first one is to accuse you. The second one is to lead the world astray. All he wants to do is frustrate God's plan and have all the worship for himself. Daniel chapter 12, verse 13 tells us that there are evil beings, satanic beings, who are assigned to nations to control and direct them. Did you know that? When Daniel was praying, Daniel was praying for 21 days to get an answer from God. Have you ever done that? He hung in there. And an angel came and he met with him and he said, Daniel, from the moment you started praying, your prayer was answered. But he had to wait 21 days. Why? Because the angel says, I was delayed by the prince of Persia. He was talking about the spiritual realm. He was saying that there was a battle that was going on and this angel was coming to give him the answer to his prayer, but he had to get through a spiritual warfare to get there. The prince of Persia. Do you know that the issues that you see in New Zealand and America and around the world really have nothing to do with the issues that you see around the world, but more about the powers behind those nations. The decline of morality in a God-centered society in New Zealand has less to do with personal agendas and more to do with Satan's agenda. There's a government in the spiritual realm, and it seeks to control the affairs of mankind. You see, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. He sees this world as his. If you're a Christian, you're a nuisance. You're getting in the way of his plan. Well, let's think a little bit more about the devil's goal and what he's tried to do. Some of the stuff may be quite new to you, and you might find it quite surprising or uh, something that you want to read a little bit more about. In Genesis chapter 3, we read that God gave a prophecy and said that there is going to be a Messiah come, and he is going to crush your head, Satan. 
And he's going to come through a lineage. And you see, from that moment, Satan tried to destroy the lineage. He thought, and logically speaking, it makes sense, doesn't it? If I can mess this human race up to the point where it cannot bring a pure human, then God's lost. And so you read one of the most strange encounters in Genesis chapter 6, where it says that the angels of God, the fallen angels, came down to earth and intermarried with women and had offspring called what? Does anyone know? Nephilim. They were called the giants. They were called men of renown. They had supernatural powers. Now, it's interesting when you read the cultures of the Greeks and you read the cultures of the Chinese and the Indians and many others, and you go back and you realize they tell a very similar story. You'll know that from Greek mythology. They talk about these, they talk about these, these gods that came down and, and intermarried and had offspring. Maybe you've thought up until now that's just a load of nonsense. Well, Genesis 6 actually says it's not. And you know what the scary thing is? God says that they were on the earth in those days and also after the flood. And so when you realize and you read, and, and, and I used to do this, read the Old Testament and think, why did God tell um, Joshua and Caleb and, and Moses and these guys to go and wipe out entire groups of people? Didn't that seem a little harsh? It does seem harsh until you start reading under the text and you realize it references Rephaim, it references Nephilim, it references giants. See, what had happened is Satan was trying to lay a minefield. He was trying to wreck the whole human race, and God had to deal with it. Why did God bring the flood in Genesis 6? It wasn't just because people were being a little bit naughty. There was a massive problem. And when you read and realize that Joshua and Caleb said they went into the land of Canaan, it says that they came back and they said, we saw the, the, uh, the giants there and, and we were like grasshoppers in their sight. They weren't being quaint. They weren't trying to just make up something. They seriously were very small people compared to these, these giants. Such a strange thing. And if you have any fascination in this area, you can go online and actually see some research that's been done on this and a lot of the hidden archaeology. Of course, it destroys, um, it destroys so much of evolution and archaeology that, that people just don't want to talk about it because it, it just undermines the, the philosophy of the world. But it didn't stop there. You see, the question you'd have, I suppose, is, okay, Jesus came. Why did the Holocaust then happen? Why did things continue to happen? Why does there continue to be persecution against the Jewish people? I'll tell you why. This is a theory, but it has scriptural support. When you look at Isaiah chapter 5 and Zechariah chapter 13, you realize that at the end times, Jesus is going to come back on a precondition. You know what the precondition is? It has something to do with Israel. Does anyone know what it is? Israel has to call out for the return of God and acknowledge their sin. And I suspect that the enemy has tried to destroy the Jewish people for that very reason. Go and do your own reading on that. But there's some interesting things to think about there. And in Zechariah chapter 13, we read, I think Eric mentioned it last week, the sad situation that we know is going to happen in the end times, that it says two-thirds of the Jewish people will be killed. One-third of the Jewish people were killed in the Holocaust. Two-thirds in the end times. 
Is that Satan's goal? I don't know. You go and do your own homework about that. But we do know that his hatred towards the people of God has not ended. Okay, this is pretty serious stuff, isn't it? Pretty somber. But why are we doing this today? It's because I believe we need to have our eyes open a little bit. Not so we're fascinated in it, so we can take a stand. Because we're in a war, and we need to take a stand and deal with this stuff. What about demons? Are they different? Where do they come from? This is a whole topic on its own. It's a different study. But demons are different to angels. Get that. They are not the same. We don't know exactly where demons came from. There's a lot of people who say that um, potentially they are the spirits of the Nephilim who are neither angel nor human. And what do you do with a spirit that when the Nephilim dies? Who knows? But that, that's a, an understanding that has a lot of um, support behind it. But again, you need to do your own reading about that. But what, what are the demons' purpose? Well, they perform a function that always is bad. <laughs> They speak through people. They cause sickness, physical ailments, ailments. They teach false doctrine. Did you know that? It actually says in the New Testament that there are demons who teach false doctrine. Did you know that? Be careful what you listen to. Test what I'm saying this morning. Test anything you hear. Make sure there's nothing where the enemy has tried to creep in. They always need a body to inhabit different to angels we see that in the the times of jesus they always needed a body remember that when he cast them out he cast them out and, and and there was one situation where they they begged jesus to let them go into the pigs remember that they needed a body to inhabit they cause muteness they try and stop god's plan to set people free you know let me tell you a story a number of years ago i'd been in a time in my life where I was, I'd spent a number of weeks in prayer and I really was seeking God and I had to run a home group of young people and I'd been praying on my knees for a while. I said, Lord, what do you want me to go and share? And I distinctly remember him saying, you must tell them to repent of their sexual immorality and confess it. And I remember just praying going, oh man, are you serious? You know, this is not exactly the most pleasant thing to bring. Well, I turned up to this, this home group, and uh, I was talking, and, and as I got to this point to, and, and said, wanted to tell them, you, you, some of you guys are bound in sexual sin, you need to be set free. Do you know what happened to me? An invisible pair of hands came around my throat, and, and were crushing my vocal cords, and I couldn't speak. And I instinctively raised my hand like this to take, take this hand off, and I, and I couldn't grab anything. I literally couldn't talk. And everyone was looking at me, and they were completely oblivious. And I knew what was going on. And so I prayed. I said, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. Get out of this place. As soon as I did that, I was free. I could speak freely. And I said to them, you guys have been involved in sexual sin. You need to repent right now. And I paused awkwardly. And then a number of people just said, that's me. And they confessed and they were set free right there and then. You see, this, you see, Satan and demons want to stop the power of God in your life. And we must not let it happen. I'm, I'm angry with the enemy at the moment, I've got to tell you. I am, I'm sick of it. I see him thwarting the plan of God 
And I see him binding people up even in this place and keeping you in a state of depression and, and keeping you away from living for God. And, and we've got to put that nonsense behind us. They know their destiny. Matthew 8, verse 28, we read how they said to Jesus when he was casting them out, they said, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? You see, they know their destiny. There's an appointed time. They're going to pay the price. I want us to read just a couple of passages together. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. I want to encourage you this morning that he has given you authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal disease and sickness. You have authority. We've probably been taught for many years or led to believe we don't, but we do. And if we're not seeing freedom, we need to seek it. But let's have a look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 43. When an evil spirit comes out of a man and it goes through and rid places and seeking rest and does not find it, then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Well, we want to learn just a few things in these remaining minutes. A few things from these verses. The first thing is that Jesus gave authority to the disciples, as he's done to us, to drive out evil also referenced unclean spirits. But we can get quite confused when we talk about these passages because unfortunately, as we said a couple of weeks ago, and you can listen to that message, the translations that we have are not very accurate, I hate to say. They don't translate the words very well. And so we just read things like demon possession and it all seems to be the same thing, but it's not. When Jesus speaks of the person and the problem they have demonically, he uses a word called daimonozamani, which means under the power of a demon. It's mistranslated demon possession. It's not. It's under the power. We talked about that. But when he speaks of the demon itself, it's interesting, the word he uses is either evil spirit or unclean spirit. But they're two separate things. Did you know that? You see, the reason it seems complicated is because it is. We read in Ephesians 6 that it's a kingdom of darkness. There's authorities. There's rulers. There's different beings. They have different roles. It's not just as straightforward as you might have led, been led to believe all your life. An unclean spirit. In the Greek, it means being unclean in a moral sense or unclean in your thought life. You see, those, those demons, those spirits, enter someone because they're looking for an outlet 
for their filthy morality. They are an unclean spirit. As we talked about a few weeks ago, if you're living in the Word of God, you're living in prayer, you're, you, you are a sacrifice to God, and yet you still can't break something in your life, it's quite likely there is an unclean spirit that you need to deal with. The other word, though, is evil spirit. In the, in the Greek, it means <clears throat> evil spirit are messengers and ministers of the devil. And essentially, their aim is to administer evil. Isn't that interesting? There are some spirits, and their only aim, like Satan's, is to administer evil. That's pretty horrendous, isn't it? These are guys you don't want to have anything to do with. I love it in, in, in the ministry of Jesus. You just get that sense that Jesus came along, he had a job to do, and these flies kept getting in the way. And he just had to swat them. Just got out the fly spray and just got rid of them. He never focused on them. He just, they were just an annoyance. Just got in his way. He was here to set people free. And that's the attitude we should have. We should never seek to encounter beings. We should never try to be overly fascinated with them. They're a pest. We should deal with them in the name of Jesus and move on in our life, right? So why would you want to be bound up because of bad theology in your life? As we said a few weeks ago, people have gone and come and gone from this church the last seven years because they don't believe. No, you can't have a demon influence in your life. Well, I'm sorry. For bad theology, you're bound. Why do you want to muck around with that? Just deal with it. And move on and serve God. It's time to grow up. Well, sorry, I'm getting a little worked up. I apologize partly. <laughs> but listen, a couple of weeks ago we talked about getting rid of this rubbish in your life, but be very careful because Matthew 12 says you clean your house, and lo and behold, you don't do anything different. Your door's still open. You end up worse than when you started. And we need to make sure that when we invoke the name of Jesus and we get rid of those spirits, we then replace with the Word of God, with worship, and with total lordship of Jesus Christ in that area of our life. See, everything else might be going fine in your life, but there's one area you can't get over. It's because Christ is not Lord, someone else is. And when you've dealt with that nonsense, then allow Christ to be Lord of that area of your life. A house can only be swept clean and put in order if Jesus does it. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, Satan doesn't drive out Satan. Only Jesus can do that. Well, what else can we know about demons as we're finishing? In Psalm 22, I think we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the interesting thing, Jesus is on the cross, and Psalm 22 is basically a description of Jesus on the cross. And he says this strange thing. He says, the bulls of Bashan surround me, which makes really no sense at all, does it? I mean, what the heck is he talking about? He's on, on the cross, and he's talking about the bulls of Bashan. What on earth is that? Again, this is something that you need to do your own reading of, but it's fascinating as you get into it. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, we read of an interesting king called King Og, the king of Bashan. And King Og was a Rephaite. He was a descendant of the Nephilim, one of the remaining Nephilim. 
And as you get in and you study a bit of this stuff, you realize that there was a whole lot of demonic stuff going on in the kingdom of Bashan. And, and some authors have said perhaps as Christ was on the cross, he was actually not only tormented by carrying the sin for you and me, but he was engaged in spiritual warfare of torment, being surrounded by a demonic realm. Well, clearly he was. There's no doubt about that. But perhaps the reference there is, has got more to it than we first see. Well, I love Revelation chapter 20. Let's just have a look at that. There comes a time where Satan, the dragon, gets thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. And it says in Revelation 20 verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked him and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. You know why I love that? Because obviously he comes out again a thousand years later and then it's all over reasonably quickly. But, you know, I love it that you get this picture that Jesus is in heaven and he doesn't even bother looking at the dragon. He just says to an angel, do you want to chuck him in the abyss for me? And the angel goes, one angel, one angel goes over to, to the dragon and d- doesn't even give her the appearance of a fight. Just puts a chain around him and chucks him in the abyss. One angel. I love that. You see, Jesus is so powerful. He created all these beings. If he wanted to, with one thought, he could destroy everything. But his mercy and grace doesn't uh, condemn us, doesn't pay us for our sins as we deserve. And he's even given Satan an appointed time. But he's all-powerful. 1 John 3 verse 2 is a verse that says, One day we will be like him, like Jesus, for we shall see him as he is. It's an amazing thought to think that one day we're actually going to see all these things we've been talking about today. We're going to see the spiritual realm. We're going to be in the presence of God. I'm looking forward to some discussions with people who have died, but also with angels and say, really, you're involved at that moment in my life? That's amazing. Thank you for being there. But, you know, we're going to be in the presence of God and see him because we're going to be like him. Well, right now, though, we know that we're in that spiritual war. And we've got to make sure that we're wise and we engage in it. Ephesians chapter 6, let's just finish as we read Ephesians chapter 6 together. starts off with the the word finally, and that's where we're finishing today. Finally, and I say this to all of us, it's for all of us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Why? So you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Oh, the devil has nothing to do with me. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that's not correct because Ephesians 6.11 says he has schemes against you. And you need to put on your armor. What's the first thing you do in the morning? You get dressed. 
What about spiritually? Do you get dressed spiritually? Would you walk out the door naked? Would you walk down the street without your pants on? Of course not. Would you walk down the street without your spiritual armor on? Yes, you would. Why do you do that? I don't know. What's the very first thing you should do when, the, when your eyes open in the morning? Facebook, right? It's the first thing. Check how many likes you got. Instagram, right? That's a good place to start your day. No. What's the very first thing? I'm kidding you not. What's the very first thing your eyes should focus on when, that, when you wake up in the morning? His face. How do you do it? The Word of God. Put on the full armor of God. If you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, I'm defeated, I just keep falling. Is the very first thing you look at in the morning the Word of God? You can read a chapter in about three minutes. Why not start every single morning from this point on to the day you die with two chapters, first thing in the morning? Turn on your light, use a torch, I really don't care. But if you come to me and you say, I've got problems in my life and I'm not, you know, I'm not conquering... And I say, what's the first thing you look at in the morning? You say, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever. I'll say, okay, go home, try for a week, reading the Bible first thing in the morning before you get out of bed, and then let's talk next week. Okay, that's the extent of counseling. I'm sorry about that. That's, I really don't have much more to give other than that. That's, God's already said it. Put on the full armor of God. It doesn't get more simple. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Why? So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Why don't we just stand together, guys? I know it's been a bit of a full-on message this morning, and and hopefully you've learned a few things. No doubt there's things you, you want to go check out for yourself. But you know overall that we're in a war. We don't want to focus on the war. We want to focus on the reason for the war and what we're here to do. I'm just going to pray that God will protect us as we go. And then I'm going to ask you to turn to the person next to you and tell them what's the biggest thing you learned this morning and what are you going to do differently about it um, this coming week. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's so honest, it's so open, it doesn't muck around. It tells us, Lord, that there's things we don't see that interact in our lives, but it also tells us that we're on the side of victory. And so, Lord, we stand together. We put on the spiritual armor right now. We've been doing that today, reading the word of God. We're putting on the spiritual armor, Lord, and we take a stand in Northern Hills and we say, that we want to be seeing victory in our own personal walks, in our workplaces, our marriages, our families. We want to see victory for the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, I just pray a blessing on everyone here today that if there are people who are struggling, who have been defeated, Lord, help them to take a stand this week, to put in, the, in place those, those habits that we should all have. And, Lord, we just pray you'll empower us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.